Good morning, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing at the 1045 service? Good, good, good. You guys obviously got lost on your way to the first service because it was so foggy, but you made it to the 1045. I'm kidding. Um, glad that you guys are here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Journey, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here at Discover Church. The year is 2004. It was summertime. I had just graduated from high school, and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and so I established some goals. My goals were to go to college um, and to try to finish college uh, with as little debt as possible. Um, much to my surprise, I actually scored high enough on the ACT to qualify for some partial scholarships. And then with a little bit of hustle and hard work, I applied for like a hundred other merit-based scholarships and got just enough to cover my tuition and books. And I was going to live at home and drive to Warrensburg um, at U to, well, CMSU at the time, but you see him now. And, uh, and so that was my plan. The plan was set. The plan was in place until... God changed it. The summer of that year, um, in July, I went to my very first summer camp as a, uh, as a student. Um, we moved around a lot, and so I never got a chance to go to summer camp with the youth group. Um, and the church that I was at, they invited the, the seniors who had just graduated to come to camp with them as kind of the explanation, explanation point of their, uh, of their youth group experience. And so I did, and it was awesome. I was, I was really looking forward to it, in part because I was looking forward to camp uh, in part because I was looking forward to seeing my girlfriend. Um, Jessica and I, who I am now married to, uh, we had started dating in May of that year. In June of that year, just a few weeks after we started dating, um, she left for the summer to go travel with a worship team that helped put on these camps across the country. And this was the camp that, that I was gonna be at, she was gonna be at, it's gonna be the first time that we had seen each other in six weeks and it was gonna be great. So I wish I could tell you that I went into camp with all of the best and most pure motives, but I did not. Um, and, and so we got there and we saw each other. And it was awesome. And, and the week was incredible. I mean, the band was great. Um, the, the preacher man did an awesome job. I mean, God really moved to work. There was 1,500 teenagers at this camp. I'd never seen that many teenagers in one place worshiping Jesus before. They had all kinds of games and stuff. I mean, it was, it was incredible. There was a lot of highs and there was some lows. The biggest low would have been the fact that Jessica dropped me like a bad habit on Thursday of camp. And I played it off like it was mutual because that's what you're supposed to do if you're the guy and you get dumped. And, uh, but it definitely was not mutual. And it was really confusing to me um, because the, the previous day we were on our way to an offsite um, activity with like a hundred other kids and we were on one of the buses and we were making out on the bus on the way there on Wednesday, and then she dropped me on Thursday. I guess now that I'm saying that out loud, perhaps there's correlation and causation with, with that. Um, Jessica actually would take credit for what, what happened later that day because that night, the last night of, of youth camp, um, man, I just felt like God speaks so clearly into my heart that the reason why I didn't yet know what I wanted to do with my life is because God had not yet made it clear. And God made it really clear um, on that evening um, that God was calling me um, into the ministry and to, 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 to give my life for the sake of the gospel and people knowing about Jesus. And so there in a massive auditorium in Cedarville, Ohio, um, I came down to the altar and I said, yes, Jesus, I will follow you um, and I, I'll, I'll surrender into ministry. And after I did that, I was pretty excited to tell people about it. I remember being excited to tell my youth pastor and he goes, man, that's great, that's awesome. Doesn't surprise me a bit. Um, I told some of my other friends and my other mentors that were there at camp, same thing. Man, that's exciting. Not surprised, man. I could, I, I could see this coming. Um, came back and was excited to tell some of my family. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have any family that's really close to me that's antagonistic towards God. Um, and so generally speaking, they're like, oh, that, you know, that's nice. That's really good. Good for you. Um, but there were some people in my family that weren't really excited about the news. In fact, I had some people in my family that um, did not shy away of expressing their disapproval of my decision. Um, in fact, one particular conversation that I had, um, they said, listen, I, I don't know what, how you think God works, but my God doesn't work this way. 
my God doesn't answer your prayers of providing scholarships for you to go to school only to change it before you ever even get there. I do not approve of this decision. I think you are making a tragic mistake. Talk about a turd in the punch bowl. Now, I said that in the first service and like 80% of the people had never heard that phrase before. Have y'all heard that before? What? I guess it must be an Arkansas thing. I'm an Arkansas boy and sometimes I say things and I expect you to not know them. Other times I realize just how different we are. I say things like that and y'all stare at me like a bunch of old cows looking at a new gate. You've never heard that one either, huh? Well, you're welcome. Feel free to use either of those at your uh, work Christmas gatherings. So I wasn't very excited um, to hear that. It was, it was pretty hard to, to have people in my life that I love, I cared about, I respect, I admire. Um, you know, I felt like I'd made a major decision and, and God made it really clear to me what I was supposed to do. There was a right decision, which was to say yes and follow God and, and begin to pursue ministry. And there was a wrong decision, which was to do anything else. And, and to hear people in my life that I admired and respected basically say wrong, false, bad idea, um, that, w- that was pretty difficult. And I began to, to feel the ridicule of, of some people in my life who, who either could not understand or would not understand how and where God was leading me. And it makes me wonder this morning, have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever been in a situation where, where you, you felt strongly that God was leading you to a decision? that God was, was, was pushing you or, or, or wooing you. That's usually how God does it with me. He kind of woos me. He doesn't often push me to make decisions and he woos me and invites me to make a decision. And then I make the decision and then, and then some people in my sphere of influence just don't get it. And, and I, like, that's really disorienting. And the ridicule that you face from that, either, either from quiet looks of disapproval or open vocal disapproval, it can be, really hard to navigate. And the, the truth is that if you've not yet been in that situation in your relationship with Jesus, well, it's inevitable that it's gonna happen. You're gonna eventually get to a faith decision and you're gonna make it and you're gonna know that you're making the right decision, but people around you aren't gonna understand it. And when they don't, then you begin to feel the ridicule that comes from them. And so today I wanna ask and answer the question, what do we do when we face ridicule in the waiting? Now, if you're new with us, we're in week three of our uh, Advent series called In the Waiting. And, and it really kind of wraps around this idea that, that there are two Advents um, that happened. The first Advent happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born um, to, to, to Mary and, and, and lived on the earth. And the second Advent will happen at some point in the future. We don't know when, but it will come in the future that we wait for Jesus to return. So he came once as, as a child that he'll come the second time as a king. And so we are living here suspended between these two advents. We're, we're waiting for what is to come. If you haven't had the chance yet to download the companion um, uh, advent devotional, I would encourage you to do that. The QR code is there on your handout. Um, I'd encourage you to download that. It, it's gonna take you into some more detail about what do these two advents look like? And it will cause you to begin to, to create a better perspective and understanding about how the things and the events of the first advent help us to have a better perspective and understanding about the second advent. We learned last week that um, we asked and answered the question, what do we do when we experience pain in the waiting, in the waiting for Jesus to return? What do we do with that? And this week, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about what does it look like and how do we respond when we experience ridicule in the waiting? As we get rolling today, I feel the need to clarify two things. Number one, I wanna clarify um, the type of ridicule that we're talking about. We're specifically talking about the ridicule you face as a byproduct of following Jesus. 
Now listen, we are all gonna find ourselves in situations where we're gonna make decisions that people don't understand. We're gonna make financial decisions, career decisions, relationship decisions, and, and you're gonna go through your process. Maybe for you, it's just gut instinct and reaction. My, my gut tells me to do this. Or maybe, maybe you sit down and develop a pros and cons list about the right decision and what's the right way to go. I'm not, I'm not talking about those decisions because, because there's a lot of those decisions and people aren't gonna understand those. Right, like one of the decisions that I have had a hard time understanding, I love my mom to death. I love the way that she and my stepdad look for ways to incorporate um, our, our, their faith with Jesus and put it in front of me as a kid as I was growing up. But one of the things that I absolutely hated is that on Christmas morning, we would come barreling down the stairs and the tree was lit and the stuff was there and the presents were wrapped and, and jolly old St. Nick had come and gone and it was, woo! This is awesome. And as a kid, I had to wait for my mom and stepdad to get around, mosey down the stairs, make coffee, scramble some eggs, put the cinnamon rolls in the oven. I was actually kind of happy about that one. And then we would come together you know, me and my sister are like, like a dog waiting to chase the car. Like, <laughs> send us, where does go? And then we would saunter into the living room and we would open our Bibles to the book of Luke. And we would, in a very slow, methodical, read the Christmas story. Praise Jesus. I hated it. I still hate it. And some of y'all are like, I, I feel the ridicule from some of you now. <gasps> Preacher man doesn't want to talk about Jesus at Christmas. So much for putting the Christ back in Christmas. I'm all about putting the Christ back in Christmas. Just let me give you a little hint. You can, it's just as acceptable to say, now that we've opened all the presents, we're going to open up our Bibles and we're going to talk about the best present ever. Mm, praise God. Amen. Amen all by myself on that one. There's ridicule in some of those decisions. That, that, those aren't the decisions that I'm talking about. I, I want to, you're going to make decisions that people aren't going to agree with and, and you're just going to have to live with it. But I want to specifically talk about faith decisions. I want to talk about decisions that we feel compelled to do in some area of our life to make a decision, to make a change in order to orient our lives around God's word, God's will, or God's way for us in a season. Because you're gonna make decisions there that, that people aren't gonna understand. You're gonna make decisions there that, that, that even people who proclaim to be Jesus followers, they're not gonna fully understand it. And they're gonna say to you some things that I heard when I made that decision that I don't think this is the right decision. And you begin to experience ridicule. You begin to experience the unspoken ridicule of, of, of disapproving glances or, or maybe you've got some people that are just really really blatant about it. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're making a faith decision about, uh, maybe you're in a dating relationship and you're saying, listen, we're not, we're not going to cross physical boundaries until we're married. And your friends are going to be like, what? It's 2022. Are we still talking about that? You're going to feel at times faith decisions to make changes about where your money goes. And there's going to be people in your home that aren't going to understand or agree with that. There's gonna be faith decisions that you're gonna make as a, as a mom, as a dad, as a parent. We're gonna prioritize being at church on Sundays. We've got a lot of things that are gonna compete for our kids' interests. And, and the reality of it is, is my kid has less than a 1% chance of making it to the pros, but there's a 100% chance they're gonna stand before God. And so we're gonna prioritize making some decisions that at times we're gonna say no to the sports team and the coach isn't gonna understand it. The other parents aren't gonna understand it. 
and you're gonna experience and face ridicule. What do we do in these faith decisions? Here's the second thing that I want to, I want to clarify, and it's this. If you are here and, 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 and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, then I want you to understand today that, that, that God has a standard in order to be able to have a relationship with him. He has a standard for being able to go to heaven. Um, the movie isn't right. All dogs don't go to heaven and neither do all people. And so, so we need to know that there's good news and bad news. That The, the bad news is, is nobody qualifies to go to heaven. I don't, I don't know how that makes you feel today. For somebody, that might actually be good news because you're like, whoo, I thought I was the only one that didn't think I was gonna make it. The reality is, 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 is you can't be good enough, you can't do enough good things to ever qualify yourself for a relationship with God or interest into heaven. Why? Because God's standard in heaven is perfection and nobody has ever met it except for one person and they named this whole thing after him. The good news is, is that God loves you and the rest of the world so much. He gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would have everlasting life and be able to know they can have a relationship with God. They can have entrance into heaven. And so if you don't know that today, it's important that you know that. It's also important that you know that, that yes, God has a standard to enter into a relationship with him, to enter into heaven, but God also has rules. And I just have to tell you that there's a lot of people that have been wrongly led to believe that your ability to earn entrance into heaven is if you follow the rules. That's not how it works. The rules that God has for his people are exclusively and specifically for his people. God's rules do not apply to people who are not in his family. The standard to be in his family applies to everybody, but the rules don't equally apply. Here's the beauty of this. I believe that we need to understand that, that this world is not our home. We talked about that at length in week one. And as a result of that, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're in the family, God wants you to know that his expectation of you is that your life should look different than the world around you. That, that part of the rules for, the, for being a Christian are for the purpose of guiding and directing and shaping and molding who we are, how we live, how we interact with the world around us. Now, here's the beauty of this whole thing. You get to choose whether or not you are going to be a Jesus follower. I heard a pastor say it this way one time. He said, God is a gentleman. He will not force himself on you. So for every person in the world, it is your choice whether or not you are going to be a Jesus follower. But here is what is so critical for us. Once you receive the forgiveness of God for your sins, you become a part of the family of God. It was your choice to receive that gift. But listen carefully, you do not get to choose what it looks like, sounds like, acts like, or reacts like to be a follower of Jesus. You don't get to pick that. The standard and the expectation for what it means to be a follower of Jesus has already been prescribed for us. It is on the label. And there's a whole host of things. I'd like to share some of them with you in case maybe we, we, we forget or maybe we just lose sight of it. One of the prescriptions that God has for us is that we would live a holy life. This word holy means that we, it, that means altogether different, altogether separate. And God says in first Peter that his expectation is that we live holy because he is holy. Here's another prescription. God prescribes for his followers, for his children, that we live different than we used to. 2 Corinthians chapter five tells us that we have become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What that means is, is that we, we now have the expectation that, that now because of the new relationship we had with God, our faith in him, that, that, that the things that I say, the things that I do, the places that I go, the, the things that I consider, like it's different now because the old me has died and there is a new me that is alive in Christ. Here's the next prescription. God prescribes for us that we would stand out from the world around us. Philippians chapter two, God uh, describes it this way, that we would shine in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, that we would shine like stars in the universe. 
God's prescription for his people is that, 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 that people would look out in the same way they look out into the black cosmos of the universe and see these bright specks of light throughout the world, that God's design and his prescription and his desire for his followers is that when the world who have yet to come to know Jesus look out across the world, that they would see Jesus followers that are shining brightly, standing out against the backdrop of the darkness of the world. Here's another prescription. God tells us that he wants us to see and think differently about the world around us. Romans chapter 12 says that we are to be conformed, not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Basically, that means don't just go with the flow. Don't Just because you got enough people that agree with you, it doesn't mean that you're right. Just because you found somebody on social media that backs what you think about something, God's saying, listen, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just go where the majority is going. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the renewing of your mind happens as we walk with Jesus, as we spend time in his word. And it's an ongoing process. There isn't just once we get transformed and then our mind is renewed. No, it is a constant process of renewing our mind. I often encourage people and at times feel kind of a little sketchy a little bit when I begin to take really strong positions about certain things when it comes to um, a, a stance biblically because I want to be in a position, God, if I'm wrong about it, I want to be moldable enough to allow your word and your Holy Spirit to teach and correct and redirect me on whatever this thing is that I've developed a strong stance in. Here's another prescription. 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. You've probably heard it in weddings. What is the summation of that? Well, it's a prescription that we would assume the best in others when all we can see is the worst. That's the summation of 1 Corinthians 13. And here's the last prescription. I could go on for weeks continuing this, but this will be the last one for today. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus prescribes how Jesus followers are supposed to handle leadership. He says, don't be like everybody else in the world that they, they wear their title as a badge and they think it gives them permission and authority to start bossing people around. No, Jesus says that we are prescribed to not be authoritarian, autocratic, dictatorial type leaders. He actually prescribes for us to be servant leaders, which means that all of the people in your home or in your community or in your place of work, all of the people that God has put you over as a person of influence they do not exist to serve you. You exist to serve them so that you can add value to their life and make their life better. These are just parts of the prescriptions that Jesus gives us, that God gives us when it comes to following him. And when we begin to live and follow the prescription, the world around us is gonna go, huh? I don't understand that. How? How can you love your enemies? And the reason why the world around us doesn't understand it, or when the world around us doesn't understand it, it can oftentimes cause us to feel uneasy. It can cause us to feel unsure because we like the, the, the affirmation that comes from people. But Jesus said this in John chapter 17 when he was praying to God before his mission on earth was done. He said, Father, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. He doubles down on that two verses later. He goes, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. God wants us to understand that, that we are not of this world. And when we live our lives the way that God prescribes for us to live as Jesus followers, then the world is going to be confused by the way that you live. Translation, we should expect as followers of Jesus to experience much ridicule in the waiting for Jesus to come back. But the question is why? Why does it have to be that way? Well, the Bible tells us in John chapter one, when it's describing Jesus, it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. When Jesus came into the world, he was the light of the world. He was, and that light was life for all people. 
in what should have been something where people who are stranded see a light on the horizon and they get excited, hoping that that, that light means rescue. Instead, what ended up happening is that it's the light that happens when somebody flings the curtains open first thing in the morning and the sun is shining bright in your face and you start punching at the air. My wife loves to wake up with the curtains open in the morning. That's from the pit of hell. That's my opinion. And Lord, you have the right to change my opinion. But you know what? Like when that happens and the curtains get flung open and the sun comes bright, shining right in my face when I'm asleep, you know what I don't do? I don't wake up and go, oh, glorious day. I want all the light. No. I look like I'm having some type of epileptic fit trying to cover myself with the blankets, yelling at somebody, close the dang curtains. When Jesus came into the world, he came as the remedy and the solution to humans, the humanity problem, but the world didn't understand it. Now, here's what I've noticed. I don't like the light shining in my face first thing in the morning, but once I'm up, I don't wanna continue to walk or live in darkness. God's desire was that when Jesus showed up, the world would flock around him. But they didn't. The world hated him. The world ridiculed him. The world crucified him. But at the resurrection, Jesus proved that he wasn't limited by the things of this world, that he was beyond this world, and that he was paving a way for anyone who would believe in him to be able to have a hope that is secured not in the circumstance and the situation of this world, but in the certainty of the, the promise that exists for us that we are designed not for this world, but designed to live as we talked about in week one in perfect harmony, in peace with God and with others in heaven. So with all of this established, what do we do when we face ridicule in the waiting? Well, to answer this, I wanna look at the life of Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Luke chapter one says this, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now listen, it's easy when we read this story at Christmas and if you don't, I encourage you to do that. It's really good to do. Um, It allows us to just be reminded why we celebrate Christmas in the first place. It's really easy for us to read this and go, oh, that's just so sweet. Look at God doing miracles. Oh, that's just so awesome. I can't imagine what that must have been like to have been Mary and to have been the mother of baby Jesus. Or maybe you're like, I can't imagine what it'd been like being one of Jesus's brothers. Dude was always perfect. Why can't you be more like Jesus? Because I'm freaking not, okay? Sorry I wasn't birthed by God and perfect. It's really easy when we read this that we actually lose sight of the reality that Mary would not have received the news of this and been excited about it. In fact, for Mary, it would not have been fond or easy for her to consider what was happening. There's three reasons the text tells us here. Number one is because Mary lives in Nazareth. Nazareth was a, was a small town. Any of you ever lived or grown up in a small town? Group participation. Nobody. This side of the room. All my small town people are over here. Now listen, if you have grown up in a small town, I'm gonna say some things, and if you know these things to be true, you can say amen. There are some things that are universally true about small towns like Nazareth. Nazareth had about 150, 250 people living there at the time. Here's what's universally true about small towns and it hasn't changed much in the last 2000 years. In small towns, everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound nice? Uh-huh. Because everybody knows everybody, here's the second thing that happens in small towns. News travels fast. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. News travels fast, faster than, the, faster than a text message. Everybody can be excited about something. Mm-hmm. Here's the third thing that's true about small towns. 
Because everybody knows everybody and news travels fast, gossip and scorn causes much ridicule for anyone that the town has decided is doing something that is outside of the accepted norm of the town. So for Mary, everybody about to know her business. Here's the second reason why this would have been difficult for Mary to receive. Mary is a teenage virgin. She's young and in her culture, the purpose of young girls was to remain pure until her father could arrange a suitable husband for her. And upon her marriage to her new husband, she would move away from her family. She would move into and with with her husband into a, a compound that's connected to his family. And her job would have been to help support the family business for the purpose of survival by doing whatever chores needed to be done around the house and by having babies to be able to uh, populate the workforce. Any girl who is unable to find a suitable husband for any reason becomes a shame not only to herself, but to her family. Mary is also betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothal is an idea that we don't, really, we don't really have in our culture. It's something that kind of exists somewhere between engagement and marriage. The idea of betrothal means that you have, you've signed the paperwork, you're legally married, but you don't consummate the marriage until the fiance can go and, and prepare the place in his father's house for his new bride and his new family, which means after the betrothal, he would go back home and he would begin construction to add on to dad's house. And once the construction was completed, oftentimes culturally speaking, this would take anywhere between nine and 12 months. Once everything was completed and all the furniture was made and all the arrangements were made, then the the, the husband would come back to the, the, the homestead of his fiance. He would receive his bride. They would go back to his hometown. They would have a wedding feast and then they would consummate the marriage. So, When the angel Gabriel shows up and brings Mary this news that you are highly favored and blessed are you among women, you are going to be the mother of Christ the Lord. It's important that we understand that Mary's response would not have been, oh, good golly, that sounds just splendid. I'm so excited and I cannot wait. No, because in the space between the angel's words And what actually happened was a very real emotion of the situation that Mary would have felt. The truth is, is not only have small towns not changed much over the last 2,000 years, people's reaction and perception of pregnant teenage girls hasn't changed much over the years either, especially to an unmarried pregnant teenage girl. I mean, let's just be honest. When you see or hear of a situation where a teenage girl has become pregnant, you don't respond the same way you do when it's a couple that's been married and having a kid. You don't go, oh my goodness, that's so exciting. Congratulations. What a miracle. I can also just add a little side note here. Can I also just say it is abundantly critical that the people of God in situations where girls find themselves in that situation, they do not feel condemnation and guilt and shame from God's people. That regardless of the decision or the circumstances that happened that led to her being pregnant, it has not been an accident or an oopsie or an unintended byproduct. God, for whatever reason, allowed this to happen. And what she carries inside of her is a miracle from God, designed by God, created by God with life and purpose and value and meaning. And it is critical that the people of God do not behave or respond in such a way to cause more shame or more guilt to that young girl or to whoever it was that got her pregnant to cause her to think that the only option is for me to terminate this child. It's critical that the church of God be a place that can be loving and accepting and not just bloviate about political talking points, but be about the business of loving people who have found themselves in a situation that they didn't intend to be in. We need to love and serve accordingly. To make things worse, Mary grew up in a time where the Old Testament law was the law of the land for the Jews. 
And the Old Testament law said that any woman who is caught in the act of adultery or any woman who is pregnant, that someone other than her husband can claim the child, then Old Testament law says that she is to be stoned to death. What's worse is that Old Testament law said that the person who makes the accusation of adultery, which overwhelmingly would have been the fiance or the spouse, is to be the first person to throw the first stone. Now listen, I I get it that that sounds really barbaric, and, and it is. It's important that we don't read the Bible through the lens of 21st century civilized America but that we read it through the context and a historical understanding of of the age that things happened in. And theirs was a time that was much more brutal. It was much more barbaric. Kings and leaders were not voted out of office. They were killed and removed from office. And so Mary, having understood and heard all this, when she heard the news from the angel that she's going to be an unwed teenage girl who's about to be pregnant, she knows that she is not only going to face ridicule in the form of gossip and glances, she knows that based on the Old Testament law, her very life hangs in the balance. So what does Mary do? What Mary does is she she provides an example for all of us. When we're in a situation and there's a crossroads, there's a fork in the road where a decision has to be made. And in those moments, when you know what the right decision is, you know that this decision is where God is leading me to go. And that's the direction that I need to make. And, and all of my sound logic and pros and cons and my feelings are over here saying I need to go this way. What Mary does when she is confronted with this is she establishes a framework that every single person, especially those who are followers of Jesus, need to practice and put into play in your life. And Mary does this. Mary makes a decision. I'm going to obey now and I'll understand it later. You see, the problem for us is that we don't like to live by faith, but God said that without faith, it's impossible to please him. We want to be able to have all the facts and all the figures and all the situations. And we want to be able to run the the, the comparative analysis of of what happens if I go this route or make this decision. We like to, to weigh it all out. And it's not that those things are inherently bad until those things cause you to place as a greater value on your logic than on God's leadership. And there's a lot of things that Mary would not have understood. There's a lot of things that Mary could not have understood. But we see in Mary's response that she makes the decision, I'm gonna obey now and I'm gonna trust God to help me understand it later. Notice what she says in verse 38. Then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. What does she say? She says, yes, God, I will follow you. If this is what you have designed and destined for me, if this is what I'm supposed to do, then God, I'll follow you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I don't need to understand it to be able to exercise my faith and trust in you. Now, I want you to notice what happens. After she says yes to God, she gets pregnant. And then she begins to have the hard conversations. Can you imagine being in that situation? Hey, mom. Hey, dad. Um, I've got some exciting news. It's really different. I'm pregnant. I can promise you that mom and dad would not have immediately go, oh, grandbabies. I've never seen a dad do that, by the way. No, they would have had a hard time with it because they lived in a culture where the decisions of the child reflect upon the parents even more so than they do today. Let's take it a step further. Can you imagine having a conversation with your fiance? What's up, Joe? Hey. Why, yes, I am wearing the tunic that you like so much. I got to tell you something. 
and I think you're going to want to sit down for it. It's a good thing you're a carpenter. I'm pregnant. I know we haven't done that. I haven't done it with anybody. Just hear me out. It's a miracle. From God on high. I know what that means for you. Yes, I know that the Old Testament says that if I cheated on you, that you're supposed to stone me. But trust me, is God's baby. Joe would have been like, where's this God dude? Mary's dad would have been like, where's Joseph? You see, here's the deal. Despite the miraculous thing that happened, nobody that Mary would have talked to would have just magically forgotten where babies come from. This would not have been an easy sell. And immediately, as soon as the words left Mary's mouth, she would have faced the ridicule of the people that she loves and cares about the most. And as her belly would grow over the next several months, people in her little town would know exactly who she is, would know exactly who she's betrothed to, would know exactly who her mom and dad is, and would know exactly that she keeps trying to tell everybody that she didn't do anything wrong. But for the last forever, babies come through one way. But I want you to see the goodness of God because what God does next is God sends Mary to go spend some time with her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is older, um, elderly. Um, she had, scripture says that she was old, kind of gray hair and, 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 and um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I keep wanting to say decrepit, but that would be so not the right word. <laughs> um, jerk. Old. Wise. Yeah. And Elizabeth and her husband have not been able to have a child. They had tried for years and years and years and they have since given up because they are old. And, um, and Mary goes and spends some time with Elizabeth because Elizabeth miraculously has also just conceived in her old age and is pregnant with the man who would be known as John the Baptist. And Mary goes to spend some time with Elizabeth. I want you to notice God's kindness in this. Verse 42, it says, when, when Mary gets there and calls out to Elizabeth from the courtyard, Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. I cannot even begin to tell you how this would have been like oxygen to somebody who is suffocating, like water to someone who is dehydrated. These would have been the first words that Mary would have heard of affection, of acceptance and encouragement since she found out she was pregnant with Jesus. She continues, but why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe left in my womb for joy, blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told to her from the Lord. If I may, I would like to help us understand that when Elizabeth said, blessed is she who believed, what she intends is blessed is she who believed enough to obey. And here's what I want to tell you, that what God does for Mary here is shows remarkable kindness, that, that Mary made a decision, I'm going to obey now and understand it later. And God allowed Mary to be around somebody who was able to kind of get it, who was able to be a source of encouragement, that when everybody else was having a hard time, when everybody else was looking at her with condemnation and ridicule, God brought Elizabeth along to bring hope and encouragement 
to Mary. Can I tell you something? Every single time I have been at a crossroads of decision in my life where I knew this is a faith decision and it is hard. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I can't fully wrap my brain around it, but I know that's where God's leading me to go. And even though there are people in my sphere of influence that don't get it, who are disapproving, who have vocalized their disapproval, when I have made the decision to say yes to God on the other side of that decision, every single time in my life, God has brought somebody along to offer hope, affirmation, and affection, and encouragement to me that's saying, good job, way to trust God. The problem, I believe, for so many of us is that, that we, don't, we don't ever get to the point of that certainty is because we've never gotten to the point of taking the step of faith for God to be able to bring the person into your life to be able to speak that hope and affirmation to you. Not only does God demonstrate his kindness by allowing Mary to be encouraged in the presence of Elizabeth, God demonstrates his kindness by spending some time with Joseph and helping Joseph understand some things. Matthew chapter one, verse 20. But while the thought about these things, uh, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, to take you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for God will save his people from their sins. What does God do? God intervenes in Joseph's life so that Joseph can have understanding. Now, here's where I have to say, I've not always experienced this. I've not always experienced people having their mind changed by God about a faith decision that I felt like I was being led to make. Oftentimes, because I have not often had people in my life like Joseph. What Joseph models is a willingness to willingly lay down his thoughts, his ideas, his opinions, his convictions at the feet of God and say, God, these are my thoughts. These are my opinions, but you are my king. Change any opinion that is wrong. Joseph clearly does that. And as a result of that, God brings Joseph to a point of clarity. And Joseph also responds in obedience, despite the ridicule that he would have faced. And he chooses to take Mary as his wife and raise Jesus as his own. And so what is the takeaway here? The takeaway is this. When God leads the way, he will make a way. Every single crossroads of decisions that you feel, that you face, where God is, is helping you to see there is a faith decision to be made here, a decision to be made to reorient, to realign your life in some area with God's word, God's will, God's way in this season. Every single time, regardless of how much it doesn't make sense, regardless of what you think it's going to cost you, when you let God lead the way, God will always make a way. but it takes faith to believe that. Which then begs the question, well, how, how do we know? How do we know when those situations, what the right decision is to make? Well, I wanna share with you three things that have been a filter for me. You can use this if you'd like. The first filter that I use is number one, is this decision supported and backed by God's word? Here's why this is so critical. Because God will never ever contradict himself. God will never lead you to make a faith decision that is contradicted by something he has said in his word. It doesn't matter how you want to spend it. God will never make a way for you to have physical relations with somebody that you are not married to. It doesn't matter how you spend it. God will always want you to honor him with the first of your financial resources. It doesn't matter how you spend it. God will never give you the okay to be a raving lunatic jerk to the people that you work with or to your neighbor who is annoying. God never contradicts himself. So is the decision that you're making is it backed and supported by God's word? Here's the second filter. Have I bathed this decision in prayer? Can I tell you, I'm the type of person where um, I'm a pretty decisive person by nature. I don't spend a ton of time, um, uh, you know, twiddling my thumbs and, and trying to figure out what I'm gonna do. Like I usually make decisions pretty quick and we're off and we're running. But can I tell you, one of the things that God has had to teach me is in places where I'm wrestling through, God, do I have clarity about what this decision is? God has often led me to places to stop, to turn off my reason and my logic and to fire up the engines of my spirit 
by spending time in prayer and saying, God, what do you want? And I will keep praying, God, until you give clarity. Here's the third filter. After I've done the first two, I will often go to people who are more godly than I am, people whose relationship with God I look up to, respect and admire. And I will say, hey, listen, I'm working through a pretty big decision here. I'm trying to figure out what the thing is to do. I've been, I've been, I've been searching God's word. I've been praying about it. Here's the situation. Here's the decision that I feel like I need to make. And I really admire your relationship with God. And, and, and I'm asking you, what do you think? Do, is there anything that you see that would, be, that would be off base? Is there anything, any wrong assumptions, anything wrong internally about how I'm processing and thinking about this? Would you give me your opinion? And can I tell you, the people whose opinion, the people whose opinion I respect the most are the people that I approach in a conversation like that. And they go, man, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Can I get back to you in a couple of days? Because I would like to spend some time in prayer about this for you. To try to find the people who don't just try to tell you what they think, but they, they genuinely try to prayerfully seek, God, what would you have them say? And if, if you would have me play a voice in that, God, would you help me to, to know what the right words is? Because here's the deal. God only has one thing to say about any, any given issue. And so as you work through this process, as you find yourself at fork roads or forks in the road, you're working through a decision. Work through these filters. For me, if all three boxes are checked, green light, I'm going. If all three boxes aren't checked, I'm holding fast. God, I'm gonna wait till you tell me to go. And so for you, as you live in this world, recognizing this world is not your home, you're going to make decisions. You're going to do things that the world is not gonna understand. God is gonna lead you to places of confusion where you are gonna make faith decision on just a little bit of information, but you know that God is leading. And when you do that, people aren't gonna understand it. You're gonna face ridicule. So in those moments, my hope is that you would follow Mary's example, that you would obey first and understand second. And as you make a decision of obedience, you would do so with the confidence of God. If you are leading the way, then I'm trusting that you're gonna make a way, even if I can't understand it. And for those that are here, maybe you're watching online and you don't have a relationship with God yet. You don't understand this whole thing with Jesus. Can I just tell you, I want you to know what I said earlier is true, that God's standard is perfection. And he doesn't waver on that. And not a single one of us qualifies. But here's the beautiful thing about our God. God made a way for you. He made a way for you to be able to have a relationship with him. He made a way for you to know that your home can be in heaven when your time on earth is done. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 14 and verse six. Jesus says, I am the way. You wanna know how to get to God? You wanna know how to get to heaven? It's through Jesus. He goes on to say, I am the truth. The questions that have been plaguing you, the answers that you're looking for, you're not gonna find them in the wisest people of this world. You're gonna find them in the heart of God. And he says, I am the life. The life of peace, the life of victory, the life of freedom that God has always wanted you to have. That always seems like it's just beyond your grip. It's found in Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision to trust him, man, there's no better day than today to make a faith decision. To choose to respond in obedience, to trust in Jesus, even if you don't fully understand it. And watch what happens when you let God lead the way. And watch how he works to make a way. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.